and welcome to Shelf Esteem, the podcast where I talk to interesting people about books they find interesting. I'm Trudy Morgan Cole, and this is my year-end podcast episode. I recorded most of this episode in the week before Christmas, and I am recording this intro and uh, the extra that'll go at the end on December 27th, 2022. And yet I'm not prepared to say yet what my favorite books of the year were because I might still get one or two more books in before the end of the year. And who knows? I might have a new favorite. I always publish on my blog, Compulsive Overreader, a list of my favorite books of the year. Uh, Usually it's a top 10. Sometimes it's a top 15 or a top 20. Uh, But it's always a list of favorites, and I never publish it until the first week in January when I've read every single book I'm going to read in 2022 or whatever the year is and had a little time to reflect and ruminate and and kind of rank my favorites. I know it's going to be tough this year because I have read some great books that I really, really love this year. And what I wanted to do for a year-end episode was not give you a top 10 list or whatever, because I'm going to be doing that on my blog anyway for people who are into that kind of thing. What I wanted to do was have a couple of conversations with other avid readers who had read and enjoyed some of the same books I did. And I'd originally envisioned having maybe five or six people on and doing quick conversations, uh, you know, five minute, five to 10 minute conversations about each of the books. As it turned out, I talked to three people. And in each case, we had so much to say about the books that by the time I got to the end of the three, I was like, this is already enough for an episode. and I don't want to make it too long. So these are not necessarily going to be my top three or my favorite three books of the year. But when I narrowed down the books I'd read this year into maybe like a top 20 or 25. Uh, These are three that I just happened to find someone else who had read and enjoyed as much as I did. And we wanted to recommend those books to you. So these are three, not necessarily top favorites, but definitely well-loved books that I and my guests enjoyed a lot this year. And we're just going to spend a few minutes talking about each of them. If you were given some bookstore gift cards for Christmas, as many of us avid readers are, and you're thinking, I'd like to end the old year or begin the new year with a few new books. Well, if these three are ones that you haven't read, these are all ones that I and at least one of my three guests would highly recommend. So we're going to get into talking about those, discuss them a little bit, and that's going to be my year-end wrap-up. My first guest is someone who has been on the podcast before and is always a great guest to talk about books. It's Lara Maynard, who is a member of the library board in the town of Torbay, an avid reader. When I looked on uh, Goodreads for people who had read the same books I had this year. I think Lara and I had the most books in common of anyone else on my friends list. She is uh, someone who pounces on new books when they come out and always has interesting opinions. And one that we both loved was Haven by Irish-Canadian writer Emma Donoghue. Now, I'm a huge Emma Donoghue fan. Some of her books I love and some of them I just like a lot, but they are always uh, worth a read. I think I've read everything she's ever published going back to Slammerkin, which is a wonderful historical fiction. Some of my others of her favorites, uh, Frog Music is another huge one that I really love. The Pull of the Stars, recently her pandemic novel that I don't think she planned as a pandemic novel, but it's about the 1918 flu epidemic. Um, And of course, a lot of people know her for a piece of contemporary fiction, the novel Room, uh, which was later turned into a hit movie. So this year, Emma Donahue came out with a book called Haven, which is set in the 7th century CE on an almost completely isolated island 
off the coast of Ireland. Lara Maynard and I both read it and enjoyed it, and we both had a lot to say about it. We're going to try to have these conversations in such a way that they'll whet your interest in the book, but they won't necessarily include spoilers. So if you want to read these books, uh, we won't ruin them for you. But uh, I think everything else you need to know about Haven, non-spoilery, will come out in our conversation. I will say there's one co- there's one character in the book that uh, in conversation Lara and I refer to once as Tristan and a couple of times as Trinian, but the character's name is actually Trian or Tryon, uh, and the others I think we managed to get right. So to start off this episode, here's Lara Maynard talking about Emma Donahue and Haven. I loved it. Uh-huh. I think it's it's probably my favorite Emma Donahue novel at this point. Oh wow, that is um, from that's 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 high praise from my perspective. Yeah. Um I have never read her contemporary fiction, but I think I've read all of her historical fiction mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it all. Mm-hmm. Um but this one, I think it was the beauty of the writing. Mm-hmm. and the quietude of the whole thing mm-hmm. and the way that that quietness had this sort of tension rubbing up against it the whole time I thought oh, yeah. that was really skillful yeah and um I listened to a big chunk of it um in audiobook format while oh. I was picking partridge berries uh-huh and I was sort of in Pooch Cove sort of inland in, and you know, like what berry grounds look like, they're sort of yeah. rugged mm-hmm. and we were picking them in October. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, your hands hurt, but you're still picking berries. Uh-huh. I could see a lot of rock uh-huh. and, you know, barren landscape and then the sea, you mm-hmm. know, a bit in the distance. So it was like perfect for reading this uh, or listening to that book. That sounds like that would be uh, an amazing setting, you know, because it is set on this almost completely barren island and so much of it is just about trying to survive and the things the monks have to do to try to survive yeah and uh, through the book when they're on that island you get the sense of the seasons mm-hmm. and the uh, you know that kind of thing and then you're picking berries it's definitely october cold uh-huh. time is coming you need to fill fill the freezer you know it it sort of uh really jived in that way for me oh yeah um so and that was just total coincidence, you know, the, the library book, library audio book became available at the same time I was, you know, going berry picking. It yeah. just happened to to work out really well. Yeah, yeah. so you're kind of out in nature <laughs> picking yeah. berries and listening to this book that has a lot of description of nature. Mm-hmm. And then the, the things that these three monks on this rugged island were doing together. Um Helpfully and not to Uh try to survive and the sort of all the description and the atmosphere and the environment. It was perfect. Mm. I think that's interesting because I think the place and time where I read it was really had a lot to do with my experience of of it, too, because I read it on vacation um, and we were on a rented canal boat on a canal in England. um, And it there's something about being on a boat a boat vacation, which we're on it for a week this time, that really makes you think about use of resources. And, you know, yeah. you know, I did, do we, have we run the, have we run the motor long enough to have the battery on and, you know, does the tank have to be, be emptied under the toilet and it is the water tank full. And although it's not that out in nature experience that you were having, it was, it was making me think a lot about what resources I have, 
how I use them in a way that I'm not normally aware of in my day-to-day life. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. juxtapose that with reading this novel about these three monks who are essentially surviving in a place that's incredibly inhospitable uh, and, and not even, you know, because of the sort of uh, almost monomania of, of their leader art. They're not even able to, you know, go trade with other people like, like they would normally do. Uh, so it, mm-hmm. uh, it, it really gave, led me into a lot of deep thoughts about how we interact with the landscape and how we use our resources, you know. Yeah, there's definitely a theme of climate and environment mm-hmm. running through the whole thing. Yeah. Um, you have Tristan who comes from a, a sort of a, a fisher person's background and mm-hmm. he has some um, skills in fishing and hunting. And he's probably the, the person who has the most appreciation for those resources. Mm-hmm. And then you have um, Boromak who was kind of a a little bit rough and tumble in some ways and has more of a, a violent and try trying past. Um, and he's the guy who's trying to coax vegetables out of yeah. this tiny patch of uh, workable gardening uh, ground that they had to garden with. And then you have Art, their prior, their master, who uh, just has the idea that the island is there for them mm-hmm. um, rather than something that they need to live with. Yes. It, yeah. you know, it's something that God has provided for them and, you know, God will provide yeah. and that, you know, whatever's there is there for the taking. And, and because and of that, that he has no where, sense of sustainability or anything. Yeah. Right. And that one scene where um, that lone tree the Rowan tree mm. or what we would call here a dogberry tree or some people call a mountain ash and that's ch- uh, chopped down. I yes. mean, you've, you felt that, that sense of loss along with the tree in. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely... I really felt that too. And the other, the other scene that really sticks with me from that book um, because I think, you know, they seem to have this idea. Well, really, it's it's art that, you know, they're going to be so they're they're living so simply, even more simply than the monks in in the in the monastery that they left were. And this is a life of complete simplicity and and trusting God to care for them. But because of that, they're actually horrifically wasteful with resources. And the image to me is of them um throwing the baby birds, the baby puffins. On burning them for fuel, burning them for fuel, and just throwing their little bodies at the at the fire, and like that was, I mean, you know, having seen, of course, the bird rocks, you know, that <laughs> that we have here, which was, you know, an, an image I could really picture because it's so similar to Newfoundland. Yeah. Um, and at that point, uh, treeing can no longer find it on the whole island. Yeah. And, and yeah, they're they're really de- depleting. The resources of this yeah. place that they need to sustain them. Yeah. yeah, they're just just destroying it in order to survive. Which again, you know, is I, I don't think Trinian and 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 Cormac went there with that intention. They assumed they would be going back and forth to the mainland and trading. What did you think about Art as a character? Art really makes you think hard about leadership, mm. um, not just in the religious context, but I found myself thinking about it in. Um, you know, organizations and in, you know, countries, I mm-hmm. guess, because of the political climate that we live in these days, um, just the nature of leadership and how you lead. And then also maybe you think about cults and that kind of thing, like where there's a really mm-hmm. strong-willed authoritarian leader um, who 
doesn't entertain questions. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and is very sort of has a very sort of tunnel view of how things should go, and then the way people sort of follow that mm-hmm. until maybe they don't. Yeah. Then, I'm, uh, I'm trying with all of these books that I'm highlighting to, to not give too many spoilers that would give away the endings because I'm hoping people will go, oh, that sounds like something I'd like to read. But yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah. yeah, that that's another really major theme is is the whole idea of leadership and, you know, what happens when someone who is a visionary leader like Art just gets people to to trust him unquestioningly and, and to obey him. And then, of course, it, it becomes less unquestioningly and they do do quite rightly question him. But yeah, it's such an interesting study in that. I think, um, like you, I've I think I've read everything Emma Donahue has written. Actually, I think I've read all her historical and her contemporaries. Um, but what what I find fascinating with her is that she's so diverse as a writer. She's not, you know, mm-hmm. she does do mostly historical, some contemporary. I mean, the book she's most famous for is a contemporary one, is Room. Uh, yeah. But before and after that, she did mostly historical and. But it's not like you can say, you know, this is her niche. This, she's clearly a person who just gets interested in something and goes, I'm going to research this and write a book about it. And if someone had said to me, you know, you're going to read a novel about three seventh century monks isolated on an island for months <laughs> at a time, I'd have been like, I don't think that's going to be interesting. But <laughs> in her hands, it was fascinating. Yeah. Um, and I think there are probably some parallels between Room and Haven. Yes. Um, I didn't read Room, but I read, I watched the movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's about that isolation and yes. survival in, you know, a limited space and, and the, and living on this island on Skellig Michael, you know, from the end of the book. Yeah. Uh, that that's what she modeled it on. I think would have been similar. It's just a different kind of isolation and a different yeah. kind of survival. Yeah, and I think that's an idea that really interests her is putting people, you know, characters in this confined space and this and this need to survive and seeing what it brings out in people. So yeah, it's, I hadn't thought about the par- to mind. What were you saying? It also brought to mind um, that old style word of uh, school curriculums, um, the book with Piggy on the island, Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies, yes. yes. It's like Lord of the Flies in sort of miniature. Yeah. Um, you know, still they're on an island. It's a smaller group, but you know, the 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 dynamics between them and and what they do to survive and what goes terribly wrong. Yeah, yeah. That's it's that same Lord of the Flies kind of thought experiment of what if we take these people and, you know, bring them away from all the comforts of civilization, which in seventh century monastic Ireland wasn't even that comfortable you know what they were leaving uh and and you know how will they how will they behave when they're put here all by themselves and I think that's yeah that's an interesting exploration of that idea too the other thing I found interesting was this would have been really early in Christianity Mm -hmm. but earlier still for Ireland because you know it would only have really been established for a couple hundred years at that point Mm -hmm. and you could feel the sort of um underpinnings of you know the previous religion oh yeah previous beliefs yeah and then you have Cormac telling these um sort of saint legends and Mm -hmm. those kinds of tales weaving through I thought it was really interesting to to see how this this one leader was taking his idea about what Christianity was Mm -hmm. and was you know trying to build his little monastery around that and his own sort of 
fanatical ideas. He's a bit of a zealot. Yeah. And then absolutely. you have, um, you know, Cormac, who is, he's definitely, we know by the end, he, he could be a lot more tender. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a, he's a storyteller and and is more willing to, I guess, to, to enjoy something for a story, but not need everything to be a hard and fast moral all the time. Yeah. You know? yeah. So yeah, the, the different the different ways to come at the the stories of our religions and and what morals they, they tell us or yeah. I think he's a how character much you let them much, guide you. He's much more in touch with that that sort of pagan past that is not really all that far in the past at uh, you know in in Ireland at that time. It's interesting too that that's the era you know with Irish monasticism when they did you read the book how the Irish saved civilization? No, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah, which is basically about how it was largely monks in Irish monasteries that copied so many ancient texts that would have been lost uh, otherwise. And this was would be right in that era, of course. And how art is insistent that they're going to have a scriptorium, even though there's only three of them and they really need to be devoting all their energies to survival. But he's like, no, yeah. you have to be copying out the scriptures because we're monks and that's what we do. Yeah, that's what we do. And even before they uh, they build themselves a shelter, as soon as they get on the island, what he wants them to do is put up an altar yes. and build a stone church and you know build a stone cross. Yes. So they're they're doing hard labor and masonry skills to build sacred things when what they really need is a roof over their yeah, head. Yeah, they just food need, in their a, belly. need a shelter that they can survive yeah. in. And yeah, I think that 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 tension between the spiritual and the practical needs, you know, that, that he's so focused on, no, we, you know, we need to do this to the glory of God. And the other two guys are like, yeah, but we also need to actually, we need to actually be able to survive here or, or we're not going to be glorifying God. We're just going to be dying out here. Art is saying, you know, God will provide. And I think in the back of, uh, Cormac's mind is always that kind of idea that, the Lord helps those who help themselves, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great book. Any any final thoughts about it, or anything that that uh, you think will linger uh, with you from that book? Uh, for me, it would be mostly the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably her most beautifully written book. You know, on a line by line or phrase by phrase yeah. uh, level, and um, so I think that's what I enjoyed with mm-hmm. the most: the actual experience of the language and the the creation of this this isolated world. Mm. I, I love that image of you listening to the audiobook while out berry picking and, and, and the, you know, really having that experience of the stark beauty of nature. Uh, that's uh, that's an amazing way to read it. Thank you so much for doing this. You're very welcome. I always like to include local novels, novels by Newfoundland writers uh, or writers with a connection to Newfoundland, maybe novels set here uh, in in anything I highlight, because I think our local literary scene and, and fiction scene generally, not just literary, but, but popular fiction, and that distinction will come up in this conversation. Um, it's so lively. It's so rich. And uh, sometimes books kind of slip under the radar. And that is the uh, that is the case with a, this um, this book that I'm going to talk about. And my guest is Laurie Shortle, who is a music educator, uh, very involved in the arts community in a number of ways, and is, of course, also an avid reader. She and I both read and really loved the book New Girl in Little Cove by Downeth Moynihan, a novel set in Newfoundland uh, by an author with Newfoundland roots 
suits that I think didn't get a ton of attention around here. So I was pleasantly surprised when I found that uh, someone else I knew had read it. Now, the book has won awards. In fact, it won the 2022 Rakuten Kobo Emerging Writer Award in the Romance category. And it was also named a most anticipated rom-com by Chapters Indigo. The Globe and Mail reviewed it and called it a warm hug of a book, which I would agree with. Uh, you don't always want a book to warmly hug you, but sometimes, you know, you just do. And yet, despite all those accolades, I didn't hear a whole lot about it on the local scene here in Newfoundland where it's set. And so I started off asking Laurie Shortle about how she came to hear about New Girl in Little Cove. I came across it... Uh, through Bobby French, I think. Okay, uh, who we both know, author. yeah. Yeah, so I went to school with Bobby. So I've known her, you know, my whole life. And mm -hmm. Bobby's always recommending, you know, other reader, other authors and, you know, things like that. And I'm in a book club that um, we have our 20th anniversary coming up on a Good Friday. That's We're called lovely. The we call the mimosas because the first time we ever met, was no it's easter monday um we had leftover champagne and orange juice from uh easter sunday and we met as a book club for the first time and i had brought it to our book club then and said you know bobby recommended this never heard of it it's a newfoundland book and sometimes we're a bit skeptical on newfoundland books really and even if they're written by newfoundlanders uh -huh. um you know because sometimes they can be a little too affect affectatious, you know? Uh -huh. um, but we were really quite pleased, you know, with her language and, you know, the characters and the setting. And, oh, yeah, just she did a marvelous job. But, yeah, that's how we found it, I think, through Bobby. Yeah, and, and we should say as a sidebar here, and as always, I'm going to publish show notes with all the books we talk about. A sort of secondary recommendation is I think that we would both recommend Bobby's book, The Good Women of Safe Harbor. Oh, yes. I have been <laughs> reading that book for about five years now. And yeah. I was one of Bobby's readers. So oh, that's great. Uh, it's near and dear to my heart. It is one of my favorite things on the planet is, is that book. It's lovely. And I'm one of the people who was lucky enough to be able to, to provide a blurb for the cover. So we're both yes, big you fans were. of that book for sure. Um, yeah. But to get on to uh, the author of Little, uh, New Girl in Little Cove is Downeth Monaghan. Yes. I, 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 it's useful that on the Goodreads page, whenever it says her name, it says pronounce Downeth because it's the name that I would pronounce uh, Davnet, I think, but me too. Uh, it's an me Irish too. spelling, right? And none yeah. of those Irish names look like uh, look like they sound. No. But you no. know, to me, as as both a Newfoundland writer and avid reader, I'm really surprised when a book set in Newfoundland and by a Newfoundlander comes out, and I don't hear about it because it's you know the rule seems to be that if it's published by a local publisher whether it's good or bad, it gets promoted to death and it's all yeah. over the place. And you can't avoid it. If it's mm -hmm. a book by a Newfoundlander published by a mainland publisher, I feel like it only gets noticed if it's very literary. Like if it's, yes. you know, so, and while this book, you know, has gotten great reviews and won a couple of awards, I would say it's more popular or commercial than literary fiction. And I think it really yeah. flew under the radar here. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's a, uh, it's fabulous read. And, and you're right. I think there's a lot of people who may have missed it mm -hmm. um, just because of the way it was 
you know, presented to the to the readers, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah like I said, it flew under our radar too. And, and if it hadn't been for Bobby, I don't know if we would have come across it. And it is a gem of it is. a story. Yeah. Like, it's a not-to-be-missed read. And I don't care if you're from Newfoundland or not. Yeah. It appeals to so many people, you know. Um, it appeals to the teacher in me just as much as the Newfoundlander. Yes, yeah. It appeals to... Um, you know, when I went away to do my master's degree, you know, while I went to a big center, it didn't matter. It was, I went to a new place where there were new yes. customers, traditions, new everything. So, you know, it, it appealed to that side of me and making new friends and, you know, trying to, um, you know, not blend in, but, you know, um, not stand out either, <laughs> you know, but like for, you know, pretty good for a mainlander. Um, absolutely you know? yeah so there's just there's a lot of layers there that, yeah it, uh, it, it connected from for me like that too I think and it, very specifically for me the book is set I think in 1986 which is I believe yeah, yeah and it's grounded very much in that five actually oh, was I it think. five okay yeah because um, it was uh my grade 10 year is where oh. it was set and I remember because of the beer strike and I shouldn't say oh, that oh okay Do well, you're, you're only strike. a young ting then because the reason <laughs> that it stood out to me is 86 is the year that I having grown up in Newfoundland took my first teaching job which was in Ontario oh, so wow. you know the author's journey oh. the, the character's journey Rachel's journey was almost the exact opposite of mine uh but like you said it's still, it's still that same thing of you know you're young you're entering a new profession you're going to a new place and trying to fit in and and teaching which I think she captured so well how hard teaching can be especially for a young teacher far from home oh yeah, yeah. absolutely just all the little anecdotes Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really ring true just the, the way she feels and the way she feels about her students and the whole hurrah at the end, you know, with Calvin. Yeah. And because I think we all have a Calvin. I have a Calvin. And oh, I yes. Yeah. Him every now and again. And um, oh, I just love to see him. You know, some of the other teachers, they they didn't they didn't they didn't want to see him coming down the corridor, you know, but, <laughs> but to yeah, me, we all had those students that we got invested in, even though, yeah. you know, they were supposed to be the troublemakers or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So she captures, I think, that uh, kind of love hate relationship, maybe. Uh-huh. Hate is a bit strong, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the opposite, you know, in the in the personalities and things and just the, you know, the her classroom I swear I could smell her classroom and the chalk you know and (laughs) things like that and you know when she went in to decorate it the first day you Uh know I've taught 21 different schools here in um oh wow yeah 21 different schools and I get that you know 21 times I had that experience of walking Mm -hmm. in to a blank slate and how was I going to make this mine while still appreciating that I'm not really the first one here. You know, it was the students' yeah. classroom first. There was a teacher before me. There's a community that already exists. But how mm-hmm. do you make it your little piece of the universe while still respecting everybody else's? And yeah. I think she captured that really, really well. She you know? really did. Yeah, I agree. Another thing I loved uh, that she did in this was capturing the language and the way you know, Rachel as a newcomer relates to the Newfoundland dialect and accent and all these unfamiliar words. But then I love that she eventually comes around and I think it's through, is it through Doug, the guy who's the love interest who kind of helps sets her straight on this? Or is it another character? It's been a little while since I read it, but she comes around to realize 
this is not people who are using poor grammar or don't know how right. to speak good English. This is a legitimate dialect. And this is, you know, yeah. it's just as legitimate as standard English. And that like that was something to me, having grown up in Newfoundland and lived other places that, mm -hmm. you know, I kind of grew into this. And I don't have a particularly strong Newfoundland accent because I'm from town yeah. now from around the bay. But I know tons of people my age who felt they had to lose their accent, uh, oh. you know, to, to fit in even in St. John's, much less on the mainland. And just this idea that, hey, our accent, our, our dialect is just as good as any other and just as valid. And I love that Rachel, as a mainlander in the story, comes to that understanding. I do too. And I, yeah, I think it was dog with the combination of Patrick's, um, Patrick's, uh, master's thesis and uh, oh, the, yes. the master's thesis and, you know, the dictionary, Newfoundland English and yes, all that yeah. kind of, you know, cause that's a seriously cerebral document. You know, if you've ever, it is. Know, yes. Yeah. Such real scholarship. It, it is. I mean, it's, it's quite amazing. I mean, and it's, you know, in a way it's a little bit frivolous too, with some of the words that we use and, it's great, but you're right. I mean, how many times have I had the same experience too? Like I said, having lived on the mainland for a couple of years that I would use an expression. I love that uh, they use the word crooked. Oh, um, yes. So for the middle, um, um, oh, her late, Lu uh, Lucille asks her as she says, oh, you're so crooked. And she <laughs> straightens her shoulders. And yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was the best. That's so good. I remember the first time I ever used that on the mainland, people were like, what, what is that? What, yeah, what do you yeah. mean you're cro crooked? Like, you, they just have no idea. Yeah. And it's funny that you can't, there, there is no other word to relate crooked. crooked no, is cro no, nothing says crooked as well as crooked. And you know right. when you're crooked. Well, like that is enough there to tell me that it's, you know, it's an honest to goodness word and not just, you know, yeah, whatever. But yeah, I mean, I've experienced that too, but it's the same thing that eventually I think your friends come around and they, they get the words and they get the cliches and then they start to use them. And they're like, That's right, yeah. Did I use that right? It's like, yeah. yes, you did. Yeah, my best friend is British. And I do find, um, now she's she's lived here for 40 years, but she still has a very thick British accent and she still uses a lot of British words. And I have found that they have filtered into mm -hmm. my vernacular. Like I yeah. use the word chuffed all the time. Oh, chuffed, chuffed, yes is is the perfect word you know like, again so, like crooked there's no other word that says no chuffed other word. as well as chuffed right. yeah. so you know i think that when i started using a few of her words i think she was kind of like wow she's <laughs> she's using some of my words and i felt the same way when you know my my mainland friends pretty good for a mainlander started to use my words you know yes, and i'm sure yeah. the people of little cove were the same way once mm -hmm. rachel started to be able to, you know, use a few of those words in her vernacular. Yeah. It's a sign of respect when it you. Is, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a sign of appreciation. It's a sign of respect. It's a, it's a sign of, um, I don't know what the word I'm, I'm quite looking for is, but, but yeah, that you acknowledge that. Yeah. This is somebody else's dialect. It's their language. It's their way of speaking. It's not just uh, poor grammar, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So love yeah. the language, love the depiction of teaching. Um, mm -hmm. Is there one more thing about this book that you kind of remember or will stand out for you? The Holy Dusters. Um, everybody needs a, a group called the Holy Dusters in their life just <laughs> for the name. But the camaraderie, the support, they were just a fabulous group of women. You know, mm -hmm. I they're, the her Holy Dusters are mine and Moses book club. I don't know how I would have gotten through the past 20 years of my life without them. 
and, and, and I, they're my strident women, which is my group like that. So yeah, yeah. I Listen, think how, it's, it, it's great if your support group of women has a cool name too. That's it, excellent. It is. Holy Dusters is so good. It is. And I love the whole blackmail thing with the Holy Dusters at the oh, end. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That they come through. Brilliant. And having grown up in the all girls Catholic school tradition, mm-hmm. I can identify, oh, Sister Mary Catherine. I was taught by Sister Mary Catherine for many years. <laughs> and just just all the little, you know, uh, Catholic kind of jibs and jabs that, you know, I, I know we're meant lightheartedly and not in any sort of, um, you know, uh, negative way kind of thing. We all, you know, poke fun at our upbringings and stuff a lot of the times. I just felt like I was reading about my own, my own life. It felt you know? totally authentic to you. Absolutely, right? totally authentic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, that yep. is so great. Uh, Lori Shortle, thank you for coming on and talking with me about uh, Downeth Moynihan's New Girl in Little Cove. And uh, I hope you have a great year of reading ahead of you in 2023. I do too. Thanks for inviting me. This was fun. The third and final book that we're going to talk about in this episode is one that was on so many people's best of and favorite lists at the end of 2022. It was a great book. Um, It was set in 2020, and it may turn out to be the definitive 2020 novel. It's Louise Erdrich's The Sentence. And it's a wonderful novel. So many people I know have read it. But I chose to talk about it with Heather Craig, a person I have known for years, even though we live in different provinces. And this is one of the rare episodes where I recorded by Zoom. So I had the opportunity to talk to people who didn't live in an area where they could drop into my uh, my basement recording studio. Uh, but Heather and I connected years ago when we were both uh, book bloggers. And although uh, she hasn't maintained the book blogging, uh, she used to have a wonderful book blog uh, Uh, And I, at the same time that I started mine, and we often found ourselves discussing books online. And she continues to be an avid reader, even though a lot of her energy is going into parenting a young family right now. It was wonderful to talk to her about the sentence. And once again, um, as with uh, New Girl in Little Cove, though not for the same reason, I was curious to know how she came across this book. Uh, in this case, it was a fairly big release, and you know most people knew about it. But I'm always interested in how a particular reader finds a specific book. And so that was the first question I asked Heather about the sentence was, how did you find this book? I'm married to a writer and an editor and someone who's obsessed with books. So he knew about Louise Erdrich, um, if I'm pronouncing it right. Is that the way I don't know. Pronounced? I've always pronounced it Erdrich with a hard C, but it could just as easily okay. be Erdrich. So we'll have to look it up later. <laughs> Uh, I meant to like uh, check ahead of time to sound, you know, very mm. knowledgeable about this, but uh, neglected to do so. I'll blame the kids. I was busy. I mean, to be fair, I've recorded two of these so far, and in two out of two, we've had a question about how the author's name was pronounced. So, you know, maybe think, it's on authors. <laughs> yeah. So he was familiar with her, uh, and when she won the Pulitzer Prize for mm-hmm. The Night Watchman, um, He'd recommended it, I think, and so I bought it for Christmas as a sort of, I know I'll want to read this kind of present, right. as opposed to what we sometimes get as readers, you know, these books that someone thinks we might want to read, but not really. Not what you would have picked for yourself, yeah. Yes. So, uh, and I just, uh, it was just mind-blowingly wonderful, and I thought, I need to read more of of this author. And um, so this novel came out 
um, during the pandemic when I really wanted a good read anyway. And, um, and I just said, okay, that's the one, that's the one I'm going to read. And I read it and it did what good literature is supposed to do. It drew me in, it unsettled me deeply. And, uh, and then I came out different than I went in. I had, there were certain things, um, certain assumptions I think I'd grown up with that um, were very much challenged by this and not in the, you know, not the, uh, not the way that one might think. I mean, in terms of the indigenous um, focus of the novel, which is just wonderfully, I mean, it's interesting and it's challenging and it is also disturbing um, in how it um, talks about the, the problem with white people wanting to somehow claim or even become indigenous is mm. very, for someone who grew up in the seventies and I don't know if I'm, I grew up in the States in the seventies and there was a lot of emphasis play uh, put on um, indigenous people. And if you were, if you weren't anti Indian, which is mm-hmm. how it was expressed, then you were sort of in this little camp of, almost wanting to be one, you know, yes. they were either the ones who wanted to kill them or the ones who wanted to be them. And, and it was, it was a, just a very odd environment to grow up in where the appreciation was also appropriation. Like there was no separation between those yeah. two things. And, yeah, and I, and I, I suppose, think that's even today trickle down a bit, you know, into popular hmm. culture, even with, you know, people like, Oh, my spirit animal is, you know, whatever yes. appropriating. Yeah. yeah indigenous yes. cultural things because, Oh, you know, mm-hmm. Oh, we're so supportive that, that we, yeah, we want to take over yes. parts of indigenous culture, you know, cause we, it, we just can't leave well enough alone, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and, and so that part was that, that was really wonderful. And, um, but the thing, I think the thing that, for me that challenged uh, me was was just this idea of seeing um, you take a person that you or I ordinarily might not find very sympathetic because she was very Tuki, yeah, the, the main sure. character. Um, she's not someone I would ordinarily be drawn to in a novel. She'd be the troublesome character for me. I'd be like, oh, I don't really feel sympathy for her. But, you know, but this, it was like I was just drawn in by her and forced to think about some of these things um, about, um, well, ex-cons, for example. You know, think about it as, you know, we th- we hear about these statistics of people being convicted unjustly and we accept it. And then when you see someone who's been in, jail Mm -hmm. you have a tendency to assume that they did the thing that they were put in jail for yeah and I think having a character where you're forced to see that that's not the case I mean yes yes but also no Mm -hmm. um that it's that it's far more complicated than that um I don't know that's good for me I don't know about everybody everybody has their own hang-ups but (laughs) it's a good one for me you know yeah and um but yes, I I loved that. I loved the characters. I well, some of them were annoying. I love I loved the main characters. Yeah. Um, Tuki and Pollux and that relationship. Oh yes, yeah. Tuki and Pollux. Uh, Pollux is a great character. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's such a great relationship. Yes, that all by itself just oh, I was like, where are the Pollux's? <laughs> <laughs> Every woman needs and, a good Pollux. Exactly. <laughs> I want the t-shirt. I want the yeah. t-shirt. 
and I of course it's flowers. partly set in a bookstore which for me is such a oh yes you know it, it's such an easy way to hook me into a book in fact if you put bookstore in the title I'll probably pick it up and give it a <laughs> yeah. chance and it's very trendy now to do that Louise Erdrich doesn't put bookstore in the title but it is you know it is part yes. of the setting yeah yeah, I, definitely, definitely. That was that was a big uh, I, that was a comfort area, you know. But yeah. of course, even that is challenged because that's part of the haunting. The bookstore yes. is haunted, mm-hmm. um, and the idea of the sentence and, and that books are dangerous and that words are dangerous. They're freeing, but they're they're dangerous, and um, and I just I th- I thought that was. Um, Oh, it just blew my mind. I think she's just great at being able to take something because I think, you know, I, I'm not a stupid person. I'm reading the novel. Like, yes, you know, I've got my degree. I know what I'm doing, you know, and then boom, I'll just be hit by something. That's, that's not what I expected. I didn't expect, you know, the assumption is, oh, I know, you know, literature is dangerous. I understand. And then this character dies after reading a sentence. Like, what are we going to do with that? Like, what yeah. is she going to do with that? And of course, she does something wonderful with it, and I don't know how much. I yeah, we, I, I, I don't I, want to I, do spoilers. I'm not to be too spoilery in talking right. about books. Like, give people who haven't read them enough that, oh yeah, I'd like to pick up that book, but then not so much that we spoil the ending too much. Yes, exactly. So I won't. I won't go into that. It just is just wonderful the way there's so many layers of the sentence, you mm-hmm. know, and I I just love that. I thought it was masterfully done. Mm-hmm. I was so impressed, and I mean it's funny. It's just yes, funny. It's you know, the funny. humor. It's such a funny writer. Yeah. One thing that interested me about it, and I mean, it's, it's come up endlessly in conversations, I think, you know, amongst writers and readers over the last couple of years. And it came up, I think on one of the last episodes of my podcast, when my daughter and I were talking about a book and we were talking about, you know, what are, what are going to turn out to be the great pandemic novels, Uh, And I think, you know, even back in 2020, uh, people were saying, well, are writers going to write about this? And is everybody's pandemic novel going to be the same about being stuck in your in your apartment with your partner crazy? Uh, But I think Louis, I mean, it's early days yet, but I think Louise Erdrich's The Sentence is a good contender for the great COVID-19 and the great 2020 novel. I think so, too. I think so, too. Yes. I mean, I think it it, it sort of I, I mean. There's a certain amount of uh, profound observation about the human condition um, sort of narrowed. It sort of narrows down to a point in that period. You know, in real life, it did. You know, it still it still is to a certain extent, but it just sort of narrowed everything. It just came into sharp, sharp focus. Racism, um, the pandemic, the fact that you were forced to spend time with people. Mm-hmm. You know, how many people have you known that they are now in divorce proceedings because they were forced to confront the person they were married to? You know, yeah. every day, day in and day out. And um, I don't know. It's, it's just one of those time periods in history that I think it would be very difficult to encapsulate in the way she's done in in mm. in the novel. I th- I agree. I think it's well, it's the best one I've read. Not that that doesn't mean much, but it's the best one I've heard of. Yeah. In terms of when people talk about it, it's no, I think she does that better. Yeah, and and she brings yeah. together that whole summer of 2020 thing with the with the 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 pandemic and then the George Floyd Floyd protests, right. the Black Lives Matter protests, mm-hmm. and that tension of you know we've been trying to avoid people and and isolate in our homes, and now we're all going out in the streets to protest with masks yeah. on, uh, but you know this is something so big that it's it's even bigger than than trying to to stay safe you know yes yes 
just um and and i mean and the way it's written in such a specific and personal way mm-hmm. that the characters are wrestling with this and they're wrestling with it in a sense of um there's a personal solidarity to it that i think um ethnic communities felt differently mm-hmm. yeah that it's worth that there's a certain amount of um that it's worth dying for um it's that important. And I don't know. I mean, a lot of what I hate to think, I hate to say white communities and ethnic communities, because I'm not really a big fan of labels. Actually, I think most of us live somewhere. Uh, there are very few people who are actually white, white, who benefit from all of the privilege. Yeah, you know? because there's that um, intersectionality, you know, as, as a white yeah. woman, you experience sexism, yes. but maybe not, you know, not racism. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Or depending on the racist, you know, you have racist, racial purists who yeah. don't allow for any mixed ethnicity exactly. whatsoever. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, so it's difficult to talk about people as as groups and, and categories. But I think in terms of communities, you know, in terms of a community that is, um, racialized by the dominant power. Mm-hmm. I think it was something, you know, worth dying for. And that's reflected in such a real and sympathetic and um, you feel it, you feel it when you're reading it yeah. directly, you know, because we, we, we're seeing it through Tuki's perspective. And, and I just, I don't know, it's very, there's so, every emotion you can have mm. is basically drawn out of you when you're reading this book. Oh yeah. And <laughs> it's, yeah, it's so, it, it, to me, it achieves that thing, you know, of being so incredibly immediate and specific and rooted in a very specific time and place. And, and by doing that, it taps into universal themes, which is, yes. you know, to me, what I think great books do best is take you to a yes. really specific time and place like Minneapolis in the summer of 2020, yes. seen through the eyes of an indigenous, indigenous woman, and then somehow draw out of that things that, you know, we can all get something from. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I agree. Yeah, I think we'll be relevant for a long time to come when we're not thinking about what was the great pandemic novel. Definitely. And I think, too, that this is, as I said, I, I was introduced to her first through The Night Watchman. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is a far superior novel, really. No, I haven't read The of... Night Watchman. I've read some others first. I read The Roundhouse, but it was so long ago that I don't have a really mm-hmm. sharp memory of it. I have a problem with that. I actually had to remind myself of a lot of stuff that was in this novel. I read this this year. Oh, yeah. No, I did. I did, too. That's one of the reasons I do still keep a book blog. It's not really for other people, and it's never been super popular. It's just for me, so I can go back and go, oh, yeah, that's what was in that book that I read and really enjoyed. Good. I'm so glad I had to refresh myself on this one. Yeah. Yeah, but it's um well like this one, there's that sort of tension between the supernatural and the temporal, which I love because um not just because it's a different cultural experience, but because I think that in general most of us experience some kind of um blurring of those lines from time to time in our life, the supernatural and the temporal. So I think um I like novels that explore that honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't don't try to uh, pretend it doesn't exist or don't try to exploit it. You know, just explore it in a, in a organic to the novel kind of way to the yeah. story. And um, so it does that. Um, 
And I, I love that. I had to remind myself though about with, with in the sentence where there's the werewolf factor. Is oh, anybody yeah, out there who's werewolves? Uh-huh. You know, they're in here. <laughs> it's there. I'd completely werewolf. forgot that too. <laughs> yes. Um, I, and I love that. I, it, so the Night Watchman does not werewolves, but it also sort of um, blurs the line between the temporal and the supernatural and is about um, you know, Indian affairs and uh, and fighting for rights in a less, I mean, it's all personal, but not in a sort of bookstore personal kind of way, but in, um, I don't know, it, again, it, it was wonderful, it was profound, but the sentence to me just sort of inhabited my imagination in a much more direct way. And I don't know if it's because of it happening in a bookstore. <laughs> it could be it all by itself. <laughs> but but I think, I don't know, I think I really loved Tuki. I, I did, I just, I just thought she was great. Mm-hmm. I didn't get a good I didn't really get a good visual of her I know she's described well mm-hmm. but for some reason she just sort of took on this sort of vague hazy um a persona for me that kind of just worked mm. it just it meant that she could encompass everything I guess <laughs> I'm, I'm really bad at visualizing characters from books because I don't mm. have a very good visual imagination so even if the author describes them they usually remain a little bit hazy for me but what really stands out to me and what Tuki as a character has is voice like I could yes. hear her when I was reading the book you know she's, yes. she's she's a character with a really strong sense of voice and that's another thing that Louise Erdrich does so well yes very much very much yes oh yes and in each of the characters too it's not just the main protagonist you know all of them have just their own their own voice and it's yeah. and it's even if you can open the book and just read dialogue and you go, oh, I bet that's, I bet that's Hedda. Yeah. You know? And that, I mean, and to me, that's great writing. If you can tell from the dialogue yes. without a speech tag, who's talking, she's yeah, really exactly. inhabiting those characters and making them come alive for us. All right. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about the sentence. I'm always, I just so ex- I did this because I'm so excited when I find anybody who's enjoyed the same books I've enjoyed. Yes. I feel the same. So this is a great joy. To, well, to be able to participate in. Thank, thank you. you so much. That wraps up my conversation with Heather Craig. And before that, of course, with Laurie Shortle and with Lara Maynard, we talked about The Sentence by Louise Erdrich. We talked about New Girl in Little Cove by Downeth Moynihan. And we talked about Haven by Emma Donahue. And those were three among many, many, many favorite books that I read and loved this year. As I said, I'll be posting a top 10 list a little later, probably in the first week in January, on my blog, Compulsive Overreader. And as always, if you go to my website, TrudyMorganCole.com, and click on the podcast link, you will find show notes for this episode where I will list not only the three main books we talked about, but also some of the others that just kind of came up in conversation as we were talking. Because you know, talk about books always leads to more talk about books. And there's going to be more talk about books in 2023. Uh, There's more podcasts planned. I'm not giving it up but I am going to take a bit of a change of direction with the podcast and do something a little bit different in 2023. So have a listen around the end of January. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever app you use to subscribe to podcasts. And when the January episode drops, uh, not only will you be hearing another book swap from me and Emma, you will also be hearing me talk a little bit about what I'm going to do with the podcast in 2023 that's going to be a little bit different. But don't worry, it'll still be talking about books because that's pretty 
pretty much the only subject I can talk at length and intelligently about. So have a happy new year. I wish you all the best for 2023 and whatever else you do in this coming year. Make sure you read a good book and build your shelf esteem.